Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back. Uh, today we've got our old friend, Dr. Richard Beck from experimentaltheology.blogspot.com back on the podcast for like the millionth time or so. Uh, he's one of our favorites, so that's why he's always back on. And uh, in the conversation, we talk a little bit about uh, an event, the first part of May, that's going to be going down in Malibu, uh, first week of May, with a, uh, it should be a handful of really cool people talking about uh, some of the stuff in his new book, in Richard's new book, entitled Reviving Old Scratch. Uh, first part of May is when that book is released. So stay tuned. We'll give you some more information once we get things uh, confirmed, but uh, there'll be people you really want to hear talking about this. I'm sure of it. And so if you live in Southern California or you're going to be out in the area in that time, I would put this on your calendar because it should be a lot of fun. Uh, all right, here we go. I could go, in, I could go inside. My son I got a teenage son, and he's sleeping in there at spring break, so <laughs> you know how that is. I think he got up, yeah. he got up yesterday at uh, 3 o'clock. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's when he got up. I think oh, he's, my goodness. Well, you know, because he doesn't have a bedtime uh, during spring break, so he could just stay up real late and, you know. What is – so what is – is this the one who's a senior? No, Brendan – Brendan's up and out because he's got – he's doing a – uh, baseball and stuff like that, but Aiden's not involved in anything extracurricular, nice. so he can. So he's just living the dream. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's got the week off, so he's excited about that. But you've got a baseball game at eleven today. No, no, right? but you know what? I, I I was wrong about that. Uh, the games the games are the the game. Yes, there is a game at eleven, but it's like two hours outside of town, and so we're not going to go. Oh, okay. Well. Um, uh, because he's got games tomorrow and then Saturday. Does it make sense? Like, so we're going to see a lot yeah, of yeah. baseball the next couple of days. So we're just going to let Brendan go yeah. play baseball. And so, um, you know what you don't think about when you're like, when you're a kid playing sports is you don't think about the amazing amount of time your parents have to invest in watching you play. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I, yeah. I was, so I was a wrestler which meant like we would drive like two hours for tournaments on Saturday mornings. You had to get up really early. Mm-hmm. And, and then my parents wouldn't get home till like 1130 on a Saturday night. And that's been the entire Saturday watching basically what would amount to like seven minutes of action spread out over the entire day. I mean, it's, that's yeah. like parent abuse. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Texas, because my boys play at a small 1A school. And so the only... So they can't play locally. Like there's only Cooper and Abilene High. So there's no local, there's no local games. So everybody they got to play are these small, like little rural schools, public yeah. rural schools that are you know have a couple hundred people living in these towns. And so you know, a, a, a short drive is like an hour, but they drive two three hours, and it's okay for football because you know you leave, you go to the football game on Friday night, you come back, you sleep in on Saturday. But basketball yeah. season is horrible, and baseball is horrible because those are games, you know, two or three games a week, and the kids are arriving back home one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, you know, back at the school, and they got school, yeah. they, got, they got class next. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. But- yep, it's the. It's the life that we let our kids force us into. How old are your? You got 
seven, four, and two. Yeah, so it's do they play soccer or anything? Are they going to do that? My seven and four year old do gymnastics, and so they okay. You know, Avery's about. I don't know. They're about to. We just moved, obviously, and so we go to a different gym now. And so they start at the bottom, and she's worked her way up. And it's like select team is like right around the corner for that, which would be like the start of like serious stuff. And I don't know if she really wants to do it or not that bad. But my four-year-old, she's doing gymnastics one day a week, and she's going to pick up soccer soon. But it's not a huge like five-day-a-week commitment. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's not... But my dad, he suffered through it all. So did my mom. Okay, speaking of my dad. Oh, we need to tease this. We're already recording, by the way. You know I started okay. doing that now. Um, I need, we need to kind of tease something for our listeners. That last year, Richard Beck, myself, and Rob Bell did a three-person mashup podcast in May. Remember that, Richard? We did that with Rob Bell? <laughs> yes. Your dad, your dad. No, no, no. You, no, no. I, I did a bad transition. We're leaving my dad out. We're coming back to my dad in a second. But oh, okay. last May, you, me, and oh, Ro- Robbie Bell and your wife were down in Laguna. Did a special three person podcast. This year around May, we're going to do another podcast. You, me. There's some other guests that I don't know if we can fully describe what's going on. I talked to our man Tony Jones, and he said we can tease a little bit about it. Your look, yeah. The look on your face is a little suspicious right now. Are you not sure this is going to well, happen? Yeah. No, I'm trying to look. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pessimist at heart. I always think everything's not going to work out. You know, <laughs> really? That way I'm always pleasantly surprised by life. <laughs> that's the secret to happiness, low expectations. See, that's why you know. the, uh, the cortical lottery, you lost, I won. I'm always positive. I think it's going to work out. You, You're always disappointed, I you am. know. I'm barring happiness from the future. You're like, ugh, life is terrible. But okay, so th- yes, yeah, I, yeah, May. So yeah, so we're we're doing something out at Pepperdine, and we might have some very very special guests mm-hmm. to be a part of it all. Yeah. Yes, the uh, we're just gonna say the uh, if you go there, it will be the right choice. See what I did there? It will be the right choice. That was a pun yeah, they- about one of the the participants. Right. Well, the the plan, yeah. If the plan <laughs> works out, it's going to be pretty exciting. So let's let's keep our fingers crossed. So did you? I don't think it's good. You don't think it's good? Let me ask you a question. No, I think it's good. Did you did you get disappointed by a lot of things when you were younger, and then you decided I'm going to give up on excitement about the future, or was just something you were born into? Um, I, you know what? I don't know if it's keeping low expectations. I think it's for me. Um. I like living in the moment. Yeah. What What is the passage in the in? I think in the King James version, you know, sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Like that's a motto I live by. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Or today has enough things to worry about as its own. So I often don't like projecting myself into the future. Yeah. Very much. So it's not so much that I'm pessimistic about the future. It's just like I'm like, well, you know. I'm numbering my days to learn to, to acquire a heart of wisdom. So all I got right now, Luke, is you and I, and, and what happens in a future podcast in May is so far away mm-hmm. that, that I don't give it much thought. Okay, the problem, though, for me is, you know, I know you're a huge fan of the Enneagram, and the, the Enneagram type that I have is a seven, and they always have to have something fun and exciting on the calendar. That's just 
part of the, oh, yeah, right? I don't, I don't know if the Enneagram is true, but I think it's good. And it's, that's definitely my personality. It's always nice to have something, Hey, this is coming up down the road. I'm excited about. And I, by the way, I want to grab that phrase of yours. I don't know if it's true, but it's good. When we talk about Peter Rollins. Oh, really? Oh yeah. I think that's an important <laughs> insight into, into y'all's conversation. I don't know if it's true, but it's good. So you didn't take the Larry Norsworthy approach to Peter Rollins and no, 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 I love, no. But you, you can't. Your, your dad is a fan. He is. He started. You know what he asked me to do? He said, hey, Luke, would you send me that picture of me and Pete? Just right away. I don't know if you could do this for me, but would next time you're in the office, would you walk over to my dad's office and see if he's replaced a picture of me with the one with him and Pete? Because I think that probably has happened already. There is just something about the combination of existential philosophy and an Irish accent that just is a is a narcotic for your yeah, father. He can't help it. He's he's excited. Dare about we it. say yeah. Pete's love is his drug, and you know there's nothing they can do about yeah. that. And he now he's e- they're email buddies now. Yeah, really? Yeah, I, I think they do have a lot of common. Your dad's always been very. He's loved the Book of Job for years. I mean, your dad. I mean, I, I can definitely see the connection. Uh, given your dad's interest in psychology and, and, and theology and faith, but also the problem of yeah. suffering. I think your dad is somebody that's been um, very thoughtful about that. And so ever since I've known him, he's been very thoughtful about that. So I think Pete's work is, is, is resonating with him. Um, so that's, yeah, it's kind of Okay, so when you said, we're going to borrow the phrase, I don't know if it's true, but it's good. Wh- like, what was coming to mind? What was your first thing that, that came to mind in that conversation? So uh, regarding... True, uh, but good. It might not be true, the, but it's the podcast with you. You can jump into that. Well, you know, whenever I hear Pete talk, and I've never met Pete, and I'm a, and I'm a big fan of his. Like I, I got his book, How Not to Speak Thank of you God. For that, right? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. loved it, and then have followed his work ever since. Because in my in my world, I would call a lot of the people that resonate with Pete's work, uh, winter yeah. Christians, you know, people who struggle a great deal with, with doubt and people who uh, have a lot of questions or doing a lot of deconstructing of a faith system that they inherited when they were younger, you know, that Sunday school kind of faith that they have. Um, and Pete would describe that kind of idea of God being the big kind of Santa Claus in the sky that kind of is there to kind of meet all your wishes and answer all your prayers as idolatrous and, and how we need to deconstruct that. Um, cause there is a kind of a childlike aspect mm-hmm. to that. That's beautiful in a certain, at a, at a time of life, but when, when tragedy hits, it's, it's problematic. And so I think a lot of people who are winter Christians, doubters, skeptical people encounter Pete's work. They, they hear that their doubts can, instead of being a liability, can actually be the engine of an authentic faith, yeah. of a deeper faith. You know, you see, so you turn it, what was a liability into an asset. And so doubt then becomes the kind of acid that, or for Pete, right, kind of his pyrotheology, it's the fire that kind of burns down the house. But what's left is something more true mm-hmm. and authentic and more beautiful. So what do you think about that? Do you think that the, the doubts can be the very <clears throat> thing that you know, propels you into faith? Do you think, do you buy into that? Right. Well, no, yeah, because I, I'm a doubter myself. And, and so you and I have talked about my 
my book, The Authenticity of Faith, which is, is my own kind of way of approaching some of the same questions that, that Pete is approaching through the Freudian critique. You know, take the Freudian critique seriously that faith is a form of kind of wishful thinking, but therefore in many ways a distortion of reality or denial of reality and therefore uh, could be a defense mechanism that can, can act mm-hmm. out very badly. And so, so obviously, so certainty is an example of that, where how there's a, there's a connection between certainty and violence. And so in Pete's world, so he saw in Ireland how uh, God could be used to generate violence between the violence, you know, the violence between the Catholic and the Protestants in Ireland. And so, and I believe his atheism for Lent flowed out of that process where, where when you see a dogmatic certain belief in God used to kill other people, then you're definitely going to want to do some deconstruction a lot. So I, I resonate with all of that because in my book, The Authenticity of Faith, I talk about how doubt is often a prerequisite for hospitality. Because if you're going to have an authentic encounter with another person from a different faith or somebody just has different belief systems than you do, then you're going to have to at least go into that conversation with a degree of yeah. risk. Like a degree of openness that, that they can say something that could critique me. Otherwise, it's just evangelism. I, I'm coming in with all the answers. I, I cannot be persuaded. I think we've all had conversations with religious people like that in real life or with a family member or online where you just get a sense like there is really no moving this other person. There, there's just no – they are so certain that they have the truth that conversation, hospitality, and a real exchange of ideas – and so, yeah, I think a lot of religious people who are really anxious can't can't allow for that risk because it's too existentially destabilizing. Somebody might say something to me that can upend the whole apple cart. So all of that, I really resonate with what Pete's doing. Um, but to come back to the, your question about whether or not um, it might not be true, but it's good, when I listen to him – I, I, I'd like to ask him this question. Is there, is there a such thing as like good transcendence versus bad transcendence? Like, and what I mean by that is, is that, is that when I hear him talk, sometimes it sounds like it's a very all-encompassing analysis. Like any view of God as being kind of out there as existing and answering prayers and being involved in life. And even doing miracles is, Freud, from a Freudian perspective, very suspect. You know, it, it's covering over our woundedness, as he describes. We're, we're using God as the way other people use, as he was talking yeah. about the L.A. culture. You know, we use success or whatever. You know, so God is just this Band-Aid. But the trouble with that is, and the thing I worry about, is that I actually see lots of people who actually have a very transcendent view of God. They... They kind of believe God in a normal way, you know, not in a radical theology way. They kind of believe there's God out there and God does things. They, give me give me an example of what a normal way well, is. Well, I mean, the, the the way most people listen to the podcast, when you walk up and say, so do you believe in God? They would believe, you know, like, I think God exists as a person. Um, there are better or worse ways to think about that, you know, s- some more childlike or whatever, but I think God is a person with a will and that that will evaluates us and judges us and um, loves us and that, that, that 
and that person is involved in my life and does things for me, um, and that my prayers represent a real connection and a yeah. conversation. That that is, but it's a trans, you know, it's a transcendent view. I believe there's a God yeah. above us or around us or grounding us. Yeah. So you wonder if there's any transcendent view in Rollins' mind that is a good right. thing. So because so much of what he's doing is tearing it right, down. Right. Right. So. The, so I, I get it. I get it where people can't believe in that. You know, that, the doubters that I'm talking about, like they, they would then need to figure out something. If they can't believe in that transcendence, they're not they're going to need some other route if they want to stay connected to Christianity. And, yeah. and they need Christian resources to do the deconstruction. So the, the, the cry of dereliction on the cross, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me, becomes a Christian resource to do the deconstruction to stay connected to Christianity, but in a radical theological way. And, and, and so I get how, and, and that's, I think, who's attracted to his work. But my question is, I believe, I, I'm around people a lot that actually kind of believe in God in a normal way, if we would call it that, who are loving, beautiful human people. Um, and like, say, take somebody like, say, like Pope Francis. All right. So there's a dude that yeah. probably believes in God praise to God, thinks that God is active. I like that you just said the Pope probably <laughs> believes in God. But you know what I'm saying? Like, probably like, believes. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and he's a big supporter. <laughs> he's a big supporter, the Pope is, of the popular Christian piety of Catholicism, which is mm-hmm. very superstitious, you know, uh, very enchanted in the way it interacts with God. So they believe in it, you know, yeah. they and so they believe in transcendence. He's very supportive of that because he sees something really beautiful in that. And so you you look at somebody like Pope Francis or like the people at my church that believe in God in what called a you know a normal way and not a radical way, but kind of a normal, you know, enchanted kind of way, transcendent kind of way. And they're beautiful human beings. They're joy filled. They're not anxious. They're not going to murder their neighbors. Um, and so I guess what my question is to wrap this p- bit up is just like I, I'm just curious about what Pete would say about that. Like, does he yeah. maintain a suspicion about those people? L- like, like, yeah, on the surface they're good human beings, but you know, but underneath there's still this pathology about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so swinging pathology. And so, so, so his and, and so all, all that come coming back to say that then is okay. Maybe he might not think it's true, but can it be good? That goes. Does it make sense? Yeah. So maybe in Pete's view, what they believe isn't true, but can it be good? In that they're using their belief in transcendence to become more humane and human. Because I mm-hmm. see that a lot um, uh, with you know amongst the people I go to church with, and you know when I look at the world, I, you know, and, and I think he, you know, he brought up Bonhoeffer. I think Bonhoeffer is an example of that. I think. Like St. Francis of Assisi was somebody like that. I think Dorothy Day was somebody like that. I think there's people that believe in God in a very transcendent and robust way and even believe in miracles and they're beautiful human beings. So that's, I guess, kind of one of the questions I've always wanted to ask him is, is there such thing as good transcendence? And you would say, if you were asked the question, yes, there is good transcendence. You would, as you're pointing to all those examples, you would say, obviously, there are good examples of transcendence. Yeah, I think so. I, I've, I've always been kind of with, like William James on this. 
and in his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. And he's kind of like, you know, um, at the end of the day, it's how faith functions in your life. If your mm-hmm. faith is causing you to murder people like they did in Northern Ireland, you know, no, that's a problematic thing. transcendence. But if it's a transcendence that is making you more kind and loving and peaceable and even hospitable toward other faith traditions, then that's a good transcendence. That's a good thing. Um, but my question for Pete is, is there ever such a thing as good transcendence or is it always a defense mechanism? Is it yeah. always a fantasy or infantile? Yeah. So true or false? William James to Richard Beck equals G.K. Chesterton to Jonathan Stormont. True or false? That that might be. It's true. That's pretty true. That's true. I'm okay. a big fan of the William James. Yeah, yeah, which is good. Um, okay, so uh, Rollins' statement that uh, certainty is a form of psychosis. Is that good or true? Which one? Well, you know, what's fascinating about that statement is I definitely get his point. And, and it, again, if you take the, the troubles in Northern Ireland as an example, where yes. certainty leads to violence, then that is a psychosis. But there's also, when I think about that from a psychological perspective, um, again, going back to this good transcendence, I think there's some people that that believe things and are fairly certain about things in a transcendent way, in a religious way, mm-hmm. that um, use those beliefs to to a great, powerful effect. Like, they are certain that Jesus, the tomb is empty. They're certain of that. Yeah. But they use that as an engine for humanity. And here's the other thing, going back to William James. Take, take, take somebody like... Um, uh, Cervantes and Don Quixote. So here's a guy that's kind of completely delusional, but he's got a deeper insight into reality than all the people that see things truthfully. Mm-hmm. You know, so he sees the prostitute as a Dulcinea, as a princess. And so you might, and he's certain of that. It's also delusional. So it's not true, but it's good. Yeah. And... and so I think it's just a, the, the idea of certainty of psychosis. I get his point because we've definitely seen toxic ISIS as an example of that. Yes. You know, that, that uh, religious fundamentalisms of all stripes are certainties that are psychotic. But I don't know if they're, they're psychotic because they're certain. I wonder if – I think they're psychotic because they're inhuman. And then the- they're, cert- they're, they're inhuman certainty. I think there are certainties that are very humanizing. And I think liberals are, are an example of that, where, like, if somebody says, I am certain that everybody is created in the image of God, that the Imago Dei re- resides in everybody, um, or, 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 or human life is intrinsically precious, it doesn't matter, skin color or social location or, you know, like, like if we're certain about that, then that's a humanizing certainty. Mm-hmm. So... Again, back to William James, I, I wonder about how the certainty functions in a person's life. Yeah, that it could be good certainties. Yeah, I, and there could be good and there could be good doubts. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, healthy doubts, and I think that's where Peter is strongest is good doubt. Mm-hmm. What I, what I what my question is: Does he believe in good certainties? You yeah, know, it would be very hard for me to talk. Your example earlier about the tomb being empty. It would be very hard for me to say there is a psychosis for. We were just talking to Josh Ross, whose you know uh, sister passed away, and his mom had this saying that I've quoted 
repeatedly when she walked out of the ICU when uh, her daughter had just passed away and she asked her husband, what do we believe? And her husband, Rick, says, we believe the tomb is empty. And it would be impossible for me to say that's psychosis because there's certainty that the tomb is empty because it has created hope, it has created uh, encouragement, it has given life to her and to so many other people who've heard that and gone, oh, yeah, yeah, that helps me a whole lot. So I, I don't think that would be... Do you think Rollins would call that a psychosis? No, I don't think so because I think Pete is a very um, hospitable guy. Mm-hmm. It, and he qualifies things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't. I don't think so. That, but, but um, I, I don't know how you would answer mm-hmm. it, though. I don't know how, how you answer philosophically. I, I don't. I don't think he would. From a relational perspective, look somebody in the eye like oh, that no. and say that's a psychosis. So you know, so but but I don't know how he'd hand it philosophically. Philosophically, is it possible that that people could have a good transcendence, a good certainty? Um, because I think you know, you look around, you just see lots of examples of people that have those kinds of things. I think the trouble with a lot of things when we describe faith is we're always using, like when you hear him talk, I can always grab an example of the worst case, the people that are papering over their anxiety or their fears with God. Like you look out over the political terrain on TV or you just look at Christianity and you go, there are ample examples of exactly that pathology. And so you get a resonance of like, yes, this diagnosis is true. My question is, though, but we're not looking at the kind of normal person sitting in a pew in a church on a Sunday morning who's living a quiet, beautiful life and, they, and, and you know, facing paying the rents and facing the loss of a spouse or a child. And they, and they find faith is extremely powerfully consoling and helpful. Does yeah. that make sense? Like we're not ever grabbing the whole of the experience. And that's what I love about William James is that unlike Freud, where Freud would kind of go at one little little example, you know, the infantile believer, James had this beautiful openness to all varieties of religious experience. And, and sometimes I think sometimes when we talk about we're trying to def- make a case, we, we don't grab the whole of it and we describe the prototype of pathology. And everybody goes, yeah, I've seen that. So therefore, this diagnosis is universal. Uh, Maybe not. Maybe it's just unique to that particular case. And, and that's my question for, for Pete would be, I definitely see what he's describing. Is there anything more to religion outside of that? Are there varieties of religious mm-hmm. experience? Or is this a one-size-fits-all analysis? Mm. That's, that's what good. Freud did. It was a one-size-fits-all. It's all, it's all infantile. That's not really good. I think we need to make this happen. We need to talk to Pete about this. And so... We're going to earmark this question for them. The question we have for you now okay. is I want to talk about a blog post that you put out a couple of days ago, a week ago or something like that, where you talked about yeah, fragile worshipers. So you started off and you do one blog post about how you don't have a whole lot of love for the penal substitutionary view of atonement, which is eh, basically uh, like the courtroom scene where, you know, there's, you know, we have a debt you know, God can't let the debt go unpaid, so Jesus steps in our place, and the wrath of God is satisfied by. G- and the debt is your is your is your whole life, like it's a yes. death sentence. 
it's just not twenty buck par- It's not God doesn't give you a twenty dollar parking ticket. This is like the yeah. whole. Shebang. Well, okay, give me the thirty second. Why is that so dis- distasteful to you? Well, I think it, it it's a view that suggests that God's God can only forgive us through the mechanism of violence. Yeah, and you know what I mean. Like God is somehow compelled. Forgiveness can only th- flow from somebody dying and mm-hmm. blood being shed. And so you can see that kind of presents kind of a problematic view about about who God is. Like, why is that a feature of God's psychology, if you describe yeah. it that way? And so lots of people recoil at that idea. So there's a theological problem, but there's also a pastoral problem, because if preached um, irresponsibly, you know, that God because of your sin, demands your death. That could create lots of loads of shame and guilt and fear that God's up there going to zap you, and that, and that just doesn't sound like the God of Jesus Christ. So there's a pastoral problem in, the, in the, the negative effects that could have on the psychology, particularly of young people. Yeah. Um, I, and, and there's a theological problem there about who just God is. Yeah, God's I, I think part of the theological problem comes from that being the only filter in which people see what Jesus' death on the cross did. They start to think, well, that's exactly what happened when I think it's like it's an image, like there's this idea that, you know, there's a debt that was paid, but when you try to take an image and turn it into a full worked out theology of, okay, well, who's the debt paid to? Why the debt need to be paid? I, I think you missed the point. Like there's a, a, a plethora of different images, mm-hmm. dark to light, old creation, new creation, all these different images that are used to describe what happened. And when you turn one of them into a theory, like it, I think it all falls apart. And I think you're exactly right that the guilt thing is a major component to why this works for some people where uh-huh. – and, and here's my theory. And maybe you can poke holes in this because you actually are the psychologist here. But I have a theory that there are some churches that go real heavy on the guilt and the shame, and they make you feel this, this strong emotion, which I think many of us are so dulled and entertained that we don't feel much at all. And so you go to church and you have this strong emotional connection to something – albeit in this case shame, and at the very end of the service, they give you just a little bit of grace to make you feel a little bit better. And so you're addicted to like this emotional connection because you're so numb to the rest of life. No, I think that's exactly right. I think the reason why penal substitutionary atonement became so popular is because it is a powerful rhetorical emotional mix that is uniquely suited for you know, kind of a, yeah. a revivalistic, evangelistic pitch. Because if you could convince somebody of this, um, it creates a great sense of mm-hmm. cathartic relief that, that that God had done that for me, and it still does for many people. Kind of that was kind of one of my points in the follow up post is that 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 experience of being saved um, is a really powerful thing, and so I agree. I think it's the I don't think it's theologically particularly resonant, but the emotions it can create and the amount of images like you've heard, we can probably go through the list of horrible yes. preacher images that evoke mm. this feeling. The, you know, you know one of the best one I've heard? There's a you're imagine you're on a boat with your puppy dog. And then you and there's always right a back. dead dog involved. Yeah, and like you chop up the puppy dog. That's what your sin does to God. But you know what God – anyway. Yeah, so anytime there's like a dead animal involved, it's probably not good. 
but your follow-up post said your your friends at the prison they really connect to this and i thought oh okay that's interesting i never really thought about that but your original blog post was about how okay so you don't have a great deal of love for this view of atonement there's other views of atonement which you buy into you know that this is not the one that really connects with you but you've come full circle and you're not the guy at church who's going well, I'm not going to sing this song because it has this word in it, or I'm not going to participate in this because you use the wrong image of atonement, and you've got—it's—it's it's like you got to the place where I'm going to extend grace to people who have different views on this than me, and you can still worship with them. So, my question is that—is yeah. that a fair description of where you are? Yeah, because I think I went. You know, I was trying to diagnose something that I see a lot because a lot I get—I've gotten questions ever since I started the blog about. You know, we're looking for a church that has our, you know, has come to our views of the atonement. Or we're looking for a church that sees hell and, and judgment and God's wrath, you know, our particular way. Like, is there a church out there that does it? And there are, you know, there are different, more progressive or liberal denominations that have different kinds of theologies. I don't worship at one of those churches. You know, most of my church is more conservative than I am. Mm-hmm. Now, my church isn't conservative. I'd call it moderate. But, but I'm worshiping with lots of people who, you know, believe in you know, eternal conscious torment. I worship, I go to church with people who believe in penal substitutionary atonement and lots of other kinds of things. Um, and if I bristle every time they say something in a prayer or uh, in, a, in a meditation around the Lord's table, or if there's a particular song at sung that evokes any of those ideas, and I just come unhinged like oh my gosh this is really problematic and then i'm every week i'm going to bump into something like that and you and you leave church constantly upset or distraught or you know knocked off balance by that and and, and i see a lot of progressive or liberal christians who kind of come out of those theologies just become really intolerant and brittle is the word i used in the post really brittle when they encounter any conservative or fundamentalist view espoused by a brother and sister in Christ. Why did you use the word brittle? What about that word? Well, because well, I think it's just a synonym for fragile. It it, it just suggests that you're just um, there's a kind of emotional intolerance, maybe, or inability to just um, yeah. be peaceable and calm in the midst of difference. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic, right? So a lot of people come out of you know come out of evangelical Christianity, become post-evangelical, or they become progressive, and they um, and they do it because they don't like the dogmatism, they don't like the the oppressive orthodoxy, maintaining the borders of orthodoxy. But yet, what they end up doing is they kind of recreate their own progressive yeah, yeah. orthodoxy. And if there is a heresy in progressive orthodoxy right now, it's penal substitutionary atonement. Like, like if you espouse any of that imagery with progressives, that's that's heretical. That is, and and, and so you you're you're emotionally or you know you're expelled from community. And and to me, I think one of the hallmarks of a progressive theology is kind of holding all of the orthodoxies a little bit more lightly. Um. And, and focusing on again the practicing of the faith, and 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 the, and the good outcomes of our lives, and so that's I think you asked me this last last podcast about why I can worship at a more conservative church. It's just because we share a mission, you know. Yeah. 
um, that that we you know feed the hungry and visit the prisoner together, and we disagree a lot about theology and politics and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But well, two things. I think there's just. Go ahead. First of all, I appreciate that you remember the questions I asked you last time you're on the podcast. That means a lot to me. Second of all, it seemed I'm always haunt, I'm always haunted by your podcast. Haunted? They, they stay. Why with would you me. be yeah, haunted? haunted? In a good like way. A good, like not like you know, ghost of Christmas future kind of haunting, but no, that that led to good things. So maybe <laughs> it is a good way to haunt. No, okay, but here's the thing with most like the post evangelical is that many of them have not been embraced for their newfound theological attitudes and convictions by conservatives. And so they feel like they've been ostracized. And now they in turn are doing the exact same thing back to the conservatives who they were so furious because they were not embracing of them. And I found myself going through this as like, you know, grad school, early days right after grad school, where I'd bristle at anything that I found to be problematic. Mm -hmm. And the older I've gotten and the more I've been entrenched in a local community, I found myself being more generous with, you know, songs that might not fit 100% with the way that I would describe or do theology. And I, here's an example. So this next Friday, we've got a good Friday service that our church is doing with like four other churches in the area. And so each of the five pastor preacher types get assigned an image to describe what what happens on good friday now if i'm doing a good friday service i'm talking about the absence of god that's kind of my go-to my god my god why have you forsaken me that's what i do this group which was together before i even got to austin was already going on before i was a part of the conversation honestly i haven't even met any of these guys but they say okay we want you to be a part of this here's your signed text uh and it's not probably what i would do but out of the sake of, hey, we're all brothers in Christ here. Like, since it's all guys preaching, I can say brothers in Christ and not say brothers and sisters. Don't send me any emails about my sexist tendencies here, okay? Um, but I can say we're all on the same team because, okay, we might have different languages we're going to use, but I think there's something hospitable yep. about being okay with that. Dude, what text did you get? Um, I got the image of Jesus, the... Uh, Isaiah 53, like, by his stripes, we no, are healed. No, it's, the, I mean, it's like the one? cleansed no. one. And so it's like five different rooms mm-hmm. or something that we're doing. And so my room is like the, the wash interior. Like, we've been washed clean. I see. Okay, but yeah. But the thing mm-hmm. is, you, yeah. you know, I might reference, like, Psalm 51 as a subtle way to remind them that people were washed clean by God before, too. So that's a good thing for God to continue to do. You know what's, what's interesting that's helped me? With that is like I, I don't know if you find yourself completely like paradoxical or hypocritical. Like I am like really a mixture of different tensions. So like a modern worship song that evokes those images of being washed clean in the blood of Jesus, I would internally get roll my eyes, go, oh my gosh. But I will sing those old blood hymns. From mm-hmm. the hymnals, the Church of Christ hymnals, like washed in the blood of the Lamb, you know? Yeah. You know, uh, there's something of nostalgia. Is like, it nostalgia? Does it feel like you're part of something that's... It, I think it's nostalgia. Yeah. I will sit there and sing. I think I think we used to call it a blood medley. <laughs> I, I think there, there was an insider name for it. Like, you can sing all of those. Uh, let's words, turn to the blood, the blood medley. The we'll do first, second, and fourth verse. 
let's all sing the blood medley. And, and here's the thing. If you pulled out the blood medley today in church, man, I'd sing that nostalgically because mm-hmm. it would just evoke. So, I, so I'm, I'm a hypocrite. Like if it's a, if it's a 1920s bl- blood song, washed in the blood, mm-hmm. I'll sing it. But if it's a modern Hillsong blood song, I'm like, First of all, we love Hillsong. Telling? We love Hillsong. Yeah, nothing. I love, like, yeah. But if you're, if you're going to like someone else, we can make fun of them, but not Hillsong. Yeah, I'm try- <laughs> I would try to name a modern writer of music. You know, we had the Hillsong guy on like three or four weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's, like, I do love Hillsong. Which is your favorite Hillsong song? See, I'm trying to be. I don't think I know. What they are. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I know we sing a lot of them because you see the little yeah, yeah. copyright footnote at the end of the song. I see the name a lot, but I, I don't think I'm. I don't know their uh-huh. purpose. I don't know uh, it well. Yeah, but we sing a ton. They're kind of like the David you know? of the 21st century. They're writing the majority of our songs. I do. I do think <clears throat> one of the nice things that my my church is a church of Christ. We you know we're raised in a acapella tradition, but our church has added an instrumental service. Um, I mean, I think sadly we're all going to, go to hell for that. But, um, hey, I, have, I think you know I blame Jonathan Storman for leading us into. So, wait, do you go to acapella um, or the instrumental service? I go to the instrumental <laughs> service mainly because it's um, at eleven. You know, it's you know, it's funny. You know, <laughs> I don't want to get up that early. Okay, so our church is going instrumental, like doing the same thing, like early and late. And uh-huh. some, some lady who's, she's a few decades past you. She posted on Facebook, uh, I'm about to see if my conviction for acapella singing is stronger than my conviction for sleeping in on Sunday morning. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's, yeah. that's, that's the tension. So we go to the 11. I, and I've enjoyed the, I've enjoyed the instrumental service. Um, and, and we could talk about why why I think, I like it and, and at some other point. That's really insider baseball in the Church of Christ tradition. But here's the thing. One of the things that we've done in our church is that our, our worship leader, Brandon Scott Thomas, um, he they often will mix in these old hymns. And the, the church just loves it. Like So in the middle of this kind of Hillsong kind of style praise, we will bust out one of these old hymns and Amazing Grace or, you know, I don't know if we'll bust out the blood medley, but I think we'll bust out some of those. And it is, yeah, it is. And I don't know about the younger people, if they get how evocative that is, but like when those hymns start and we have a, we have strings on stage. I don't know if you know that we got got like a celloist and a violinist. And, and one of the most moving moments in worship for me is like, like uh, where the electric stuff, the drums will fall out and they'll open up with just those strings, like a cello or a violin playing the opening bars and opening notes of one of these old hymns like if you ever hear amazing grace start on a violin quietly you just i mean i'm just moved to tears immediately it just takes me back so far and so anyway all i like to say is i have great fondness for those old hymns even if they have penal substitutionary atonement because they're there's something more than just the uh, the hymn, the the lyrics and the melody in those old songs they're they're in my opinion i feel like they're connecting me us you to more than just the song. It's connected to the traditions, connecting you to the people who used to sing with them. It connects you to your... It, for, for me, like growing up with my parents and yeah. my grandparents, all that is encompassed in the music. Well, it, it, the other thing is about it too is, is that you and I were raised with penal substitutionary children. But somehow it wasn't, at least in my experience, I can't speak for you, it wasn't... I need it. 
it wasn't toxic um, for me. I don't know why it wasn't, but some people it was. Like they somehow that theology mixed in with their psychology and their family of origin stuff, and it really mm-hmm. produced some pretty dark stuff. But there were some of us that kind of grew up on it, and it just kind of seemed fairly straightforward. Yeah, I'm a sinner, and therefore my death is, and Jesus paid that what debt, and thank God that- for all of that. Like for some, for, I don't know, I don't know why it didn't penetrate into some. Like it didn't create a stew of neurosis in yep. us, and I don't know why that is. Um, we, I think you and I talked about it in a couple podcasts. Like ago. a de- we talked yeah. about family of origin. That stuff. makes a difference. Like, like. Yeah, I think so. I think there. Yeah, that we've we always filtered those songs and that theology through a primal affection we felt from, let's say, our, 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 our caregivers, our parents, and that somehow buffered us from. But if you were singing those songs about God demanding your punishment and you were being abused at home or had a very rejecting family, well, then that theology would just lay on top of that family experience and be be a really bad yeah that's just another reminder of how much who we are is really a product of the world we were born into and as much as i want to maintain Mm -hmm. like this individual individualistic narrative of i'm who i am because i did this and that i'm not like i just happened to be lucked into a situation where you know my idea of parents are, are positive and my idea of authority is a good thing and I think that helps my spirituality. I think it, it just put me on an easier place to start than others. And yeah, but you... yeah, I, I just think theology doesn't have, I think we always have to, pastors always have to remember that theology doesn't have a direct domino effect. It's not like a causes B it's, it's, it's always interacting. So you put a theology out there from the pulpit and it's going to, it's more like a pinball machine. It's not a domino. It's going to ping around in, in the congregation in a variety of different ways, depending on their experiences, their psychology, their personality, their family origin stuff, with no yeah. predictable outcome. And, and 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 you often probably, I bet pastors is very common. You get up there and say something, and you thought it was going to be a fairly straight domino line. I say this, then these good things happen in my church, and then you realize on Monday morning, holy crap, that pinged around the church in a way I didn't expect it to. So every time I think you preach a sermon, it's like pulling that lever back in the ping pong machine, let yeah. the ball go, go, all right, yeah. see where this goes, you know, and, <laughs> and you spend the rest of the week kind of cleaning up all the uh, effects that were unpredictable. Yeah. yeah, everyone's having their own different phenomenon that there's no mm-hmm. way I can predict. But let me... The penal substitutionary is just one, one it's just one pinball. Yeah. And so let's have grace for everyone, because everyone's having their own experience. Now, there is one thing that we know for certain, that this is going to happen, people are going to experience this, and the result is going to be life change in a positive way, the world is going to be better off, and that's the new future, number one bestseller in the category of demonology, Richard Beck. Mm -hmm. Old Scratch is coming out soon, isn't it? Reviving Old Scratch. Yeah, Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchantment. Enchantment. I don't even know the title yes, of the book. Yes, this makes me feel so good. Yeah. Finally, an author doesn't it's know a, the title a, of their book just like I don't. There's alliteration in it. It's four Ds. <laughs> Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchanted is due out in, in May, May 1. 1. 
That's what that book. That's what that book event yeah, we were well, talking about at the beginning of the podcast. The Devil Palooza, I believe, is the title of that event. And so, and yeah. So we're going to talk. And so I got to look at a little. Uh, you, you sent me a PDF of it, and you referenced something that a, a Barna study. Um, Proposed, published, published, published. published. I struggle. That was a tough word for me to get out. I'm going to alliterate that. Published, Mm -hmm. presented, and I'm going to propel their proposition through this presenting (laughs) in this prepositional phrase. Do they do they teach alliteration in in in, preacher school anymore? So our exercise science class is how to baptize people, and our English class is mostly like. What four things can you use in the sentence that start with a T? That's the truth. It's tough. Oh. It's timely, but it's also <laughs> very tacky. <laughs> that was impressive, wasn't it? That was very okay, good. So well done. This Barna study said that 40% of people don't really believe in old scratch, the devil. 20- sp- Christians. Yeah. Not. Yeah. not- People. Christians, excuse Christians. me. 40% of 20% Christians. someone yeah. agree the devil's not real. 8% don't really know. And so the majority of Christians don't believe in the devil, according to this Barnapole from a few years ago. Now, let me give you some backstory. Yeah. Now, the voice of the Newsworthy with Norseworthy podcast, the person who says, get ready for some awesome. That person, a friend of mine named Jennifer. We were to church together back okay. in Denton. And I remember vividly sitting in her house with, we're having small group, and she goes, so, Luke, do you believe in the literal devil? And I said, Jen, what are you, like, where is this coming from? And she just got, like, all, like, professorial, like, all right, you're going to fill out this test for me right now about the devil. And I said, well, Jesus believed him, so that's good enough for me. So if Jesus wanted to talk to him, I guess, maybe. Mm-hmm. But, like, if you look throughout the Old Testament, it's kind of an evolving idea. It doesn't come into the very end. They're probably influenced by other ancient religions. And blah, 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 blah. What? How can you not believe in the devil? And everything would fall apart. So are you going to revive the devil so the voice of the Newsworthy Northworthy podcast can rest assured that the devil actually exists? I don't think I am going to to help you answer that question in, in, in that kind of way. But I do think I'm going to try to give you a, a, a way to say, yes, I believe in the devil. But still um, have some mm-hmm. wiggle room there. So, so here's the, the premise of the book is, um, it, it seems like if you look at the contemporary church, there's two ways of talking about the devil. On the, on the kind of conservative fundamentalist side is this kind of spooky occultism, mm-hmm. you know, like it, it, that Hollywood, the Hollywood captures with the exorcist and the paranormal activity. And so these are people that are, you know, really preoccupied with demons floating around the air, possessing mm-hmm. people, harassing people, okay? And then there's a, this other group on the other side progressive liberals or you know according to the barna start you know study even conservative people just gonna just find that whole thing very implausible or hard to believe and if they don't just outright disbelieve it or they or they don't have just serious doubts about it they find Mm -hmm. the whole thing really awkward like i don't know what to do about it so we just don't say anything about it so it seems like those are your two options either really weird spooky stuff on the one hand or just awkward silence and and yet, like you said, it seems like the clash between Jesus and the Satan is a fundamental narrative plot line in the Gospels and all the way through the you know the the rest of the Bible, and was embraced as the na- main narrative plot line for 
thousand, you know, a thousand plus years in the church. The devil was a central, like Christians, when they would get baptized, would renounce the devil. You know, it was a central aspect of what it meant to be a Christian, to renounce the devil. Have you ever um, renounced the devil? I have. Yes. Okay, good. Just checking. Yeah, I have renounced the devil. <laughs> I don't know if I was ever asked that question. Every day. Well, oh, no, I don't think I was asked that question at baptism, no. Oh, but if okay. you look at the Book of Common Prayer, if you look at the baptismal liturgy in the Book of Common Prayer, that's one of the things you're asked to do at a baptism. And early Christians were asked to renounce the devil. That they, they were asked to, to, to turn from mm-hmm. the pattern of the world. You know, do not be conformed to the world. And the devil's described as the prince of, of the world. The world. Yeah. Um, I so, threw away a bunch of CDs that had parental advisory explicit lyrics. Uh-huh. Does that count as renouncing the devil? Back in the 80s, yeah. No, no okay, I good. Yeah. I think yeah. burn. Well, and that's, but see, I think that's also part of the awkwardness. I think a lot of people, when they hear that phrase, renounce the devil, again, default to that kind of weird, it's, it's, it's you know, spooky death metal music. That's what you got to renounce. But if you look at this, at the Gospels, that's not what Jesus, Jesus wasn't telling his followers, gather up all your black metal CDs and burn them in the bonfire before you follow. But, you know, that's not what they're renouncing. They're not renouncing, you know, uh, those kinds of things. And so so the book is trying to find to recover what that renunciation actually looks like. What, 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 what is the devil up to in Jesus' conflict with him? Um, and what is Jesus renouncing when he says, like, to Peter, get behind me, Satan? Um, I think it's – it's try- so it is trying to recover – conversation about the devil to recover huge swaths of the Bible that I think liberal and and conservative Christians have just left behind. Like, I don't think anybody's talked about the devil well on either side of the equation. So the book is trying to recover all of that. Um, and Old Scratch is just an old, if you don't know what the name Old Scratch is, the, the prelude tells you. I won't reveal that now. It's a good story. I like it. It's a, it's, it's a fun story about how I, how I Came across bumped it. into the word Old Scratch. Yeah. And like all good stories, they start in a prison. They all start in a prison. The book begins and ends in a prison. And you give, uh, that's who you, you dedicate the book to as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I dedicate it to the prison and to Freedom Fellowship, the little church plant I went to. And here, to, to plug the book a little bit more, one of the reasons why I felt I needed to write the book was because here I was like a kind of a Peter Rollins, winter Christian, lots of doubts. And obviously, like, you know, one of the biggest doubts you're going to have if you're a skeptical person is like about, you know, the prince of darkness. Is there a real devil out there? And it just becomes really hard to believe. So I go out to the prison because I got this passion for social justice. And then once I'm out at the prison, I realize all these guys out at the prison talk about the devil all the time. Like I crashed into this very charismatic, Pentecostal, enchanted worldview where the devil and the demons were just run of the mill for them. They believed in it. And and suddenly I was like, oh, uh, they were asking me to pray for, you know, protection from the devil. And and, and I, I just didn't – again, I found that all – I just didn't have language for it. I didn't, I didn't know how to pray it. And I didn't want to – and then at Freedom Fellowship where, the, where our, our, our friends are really poor – they believe in a very charismatic kind of worldview, and, and and the devil and the demons are very active out there as well. So I was stuck out there as well with with this awkwardness about all of these things. 
being asked to share life there. And I didn't want to talk about the devil and demons ironically. And I didn't want to talk about the devil and demons paternalistically. Like here I am, an educated one with advanced theological understanding. Let me tell you all you prisoners, um, all you people, you know, living on the margins, you know, that there isn't really a devil, you know, you know, does it make sense? Like I didn't, I didn't want to, I wanted to learn from them about the devil and the demons and yet still keep a hold of my critical suspicions and my doubts. Because I think those go back to Pete are really important to how I see faith. I think doubt is an important thing. I think somebody needs to be in the pews going, "Mm, I'm not sure about that. You know, I think you need critics out there. I'm assuming Um, in your church there are a lot of people who listen to your preaching and go, "Mm, yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) I love my preacher. He's a good man. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he, no, he, but he, he's a, he's in a tough, he's in a tough position up there because my church is kind of like one of those churches where it's hard to thread that needle between the hardcore believers at Highland that would believe in the devil and the demons. So, you know, we got a charismatic stream in our church, yeah. and then there's people like me that are on the skeptical side. And he's got a, he's, he's, he's going to be starting in Easter a series on the Holy Spirit, and he's going to try to thread a needle between the skeptics and the charismatics in the church. Well, that's going to be easy. I'm sure he's going to do great on that. Anyway, so all I have to say is I kind of wrote the book out of necessity as a a means of, for myself, coming up with a language Mm -hmm. of spiritual warfare that I could authentically use with intellectual integrity that was true to the Bible, but also allowed me to connect with the guys out at the prison. Yeah. Well, when, when they talked about the devil. Well, we will give this book the full newsworthy with Norsworthy treatment and give you a real interview about the book in uh, two months or so, whenever it comes out. But uh, my friends who are going to be out in Malibu the 1st of May, there is going to be an event. If you listen to my there is gonna be optimistic, positive side, it's going to be great. If you listen to Richard's side, it's pretty much going to be awful. So listen to me on that. It'll be fun. Richard, thank you for joining us today from, it sounds like you're like in a zoo, is that right? With all the birds in the background? I am in the backyard. It's springtime in Abilene. Mm-hmm. Living the dream. So yeah, I'm in my backyard. Richard. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.